0: So, thank you, Lord. Thank you. Yeah. Anyway, I was just having a hard time deciding what am I going to share that, uh, anyway, I finally decided that what I need to share with you is what I would call just uh, stirrings of the Holy Spirit in my own heart in the last several days. And the reason why I think this is important, because if if I've been walking with the Lord as long as I have, and there is stuff that's still stirring in me that really... That, that, that pushes all my buttons in the Lord and makes me want to just go with strength and power and so forth, that I figured some of those things might be good for you. So, uh, <laughs> so that's where I'm going, just about uh, four, five things, I think it is. But, and, uh, and the first one, I mean, the, today, for those of you who don't know this, the Children's Department knew it because I walked down there, and there's a sukkah down there because we're in the Feast of Tabernacles. Today is the last day of the Feast of Tabernacles. And uh, and so one of the things I want to talk to you about, I I begin to say, I mean, I'm getting more and more. The more I grow in this thing of its relationship to to Israel and the Jewish people, the more I realize it's really important for the whole church to get this. Because frankly, if we do not understand God's heart for Israel, and we begin to get on the side of the Palestinians against Israel, as much of the church is doing. Much of the church is grabbing what the news media is saying, and they're warping it and getting on the sides of the Palestinians against the Israelis. And if you do that, that, then you're going to be on the wrong side of things when Jesus comes back. Because when Jesus comes back in Zechariah 14, he's fighting for Israel against Israel's enemies. And so I, one of the, I believe the last great apostasy could easily be, how do we stand with Israel and the Jewish people? So anyway, I just want to, I, I hadn't even, there's some stuff that I hadn't paid any attention to in, the, in our calendar. And so I did a little research on it and, and thought, well, I need to, I've been saying, God has a calendar and we have a calendar. He's never going to get on our calendar, so we better get on his calendar, I've been saying that, but I kind of also didn't know for sure all, the, all that I was saying, because after all, God does work with us on our calendar. I mean, Sunday and Moonday or de, mon, Sunday and Monday, Sunday and moonday. <laughs> are, are dedicated to the moon god and the sun god. Thursday to the god of thunder, and so forth. So our calendar is is a is a pagan calendar. But then by the way israel's the month of Israel's names, some of them came out of Babylon in captivity and they're not even necessarily the ones that were given originally in scripture so so anyway that, that I, and I realize that God works with us on our calendar I mean there are lots of people that for example will have a 21 day Fast beginning January 1st. Well, God doesn't say, well, come on, I'm not gonna bless that at all. I mean if you knew what you were doing, you'd start that fast on the first day of Nisan, because that's my first day of the month. But God doesn't do it that way. He honors that. But having said that, I just want to let me just let me just share with you some stuff that I've learned. Uh, the present calendar that we own is called the Gregorian calendar. Now many of you in this room knew that. But uh, but you did, but this was started in by Pope Gregory the 13th in the year 1582. And Pope Gregory was correcting the calendar that had been in in vogue and the Julian calendar that was started by Julius Caesar in the year 46 BC. And but the Julian calendar lost one one year, wait a minute. One day, lost one day every 20 every 128 years. So by the time of Pope Gregory, it was 11 days behind. So Pope Gregory and his people understood that. So October the 4th, 1582 was followed by October the 15th, 1582. <laughs> Skip forward to bring it into sync with God's lunar solar calendar. Uh, But but then, since this was a Catholic pope that declared it, you don't think that the non-Catholics are going to grab it that quick, do you? So they didn't actually grab it until 1732. Great Britain decided that they would go on the Gregorian calendar. So whoever the colonies were and whoever was living here then got on the present calendar in 1732. And so we've been on this calendar less than 300 years. That'll just show you how how ridiculous it would be to think that God's going to go at this calendar that the Pope decided. But he has a calendar too. And he, his calendar, according to Exodus, the 12th chapter, I'm going to use a lot of scripture today if you want to take a pencil and paper out just to write it down if you want to check me Because don't believe anything I say unless it's in the Bible. And... Uh, but in Exodus, the 12th chapter, verse 2, God said that this is the big, this month is for you the first month, the first month of the year. And it was the first day of Aviv, which I love that word, which means spring, or Nisan. It's the same same month. And it was 14 days before Passover. So God's first of the year starts in the springtime. Now, I know some of you may send cards to your Jewish friends that say Rosh Hashanah, I mean, Lashanah Tovah. At Rosh Hashanah, but in reality, Rosh Hashanah is not a biblical date. I mean, the funny thing is that the new year that the Jewish people have comes on the first month of the seventh, the first day of the seventh month. How about that? New year starts on the seventh month. That'd be like our new year starting in what? July, you know. <laughs> we say happy birthday, happy happy uh, New Year, on July first. But so, but it, but the Jewish people call it a civic calendar, and so. But God's calendar starts the first day of, of Nisan and 14 days later is Passover. And then, and, and the thing is, uh, the, 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 here's how God got on his calendar. This is in, on the 10th day of Nisan, according to Exodus the 12th chapter verse 3, tell the whole community of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, each man is to take a lamb. They were to take the lamb on the 10th month. They were to examine the lamb for four days and then on the, on the 13th of Nisan, as it began to dawn toward the 14th, the evening would be Passover, they would kill the lamb in the afternoon, roast the lamb so that he would be there for Passover supper on the 14th of Nisan. All right, you got that? Well, look at this. In John 12, verse 1, John says, six days before Passover, such and such happened. Six days before Passover would be the ninth day of Nisan, Now look at verse 12, John 12, 12. And John says, the next day, such and such happened. This this would be the 10th day of Nisan. What happened on the 10th day of Nisan? That was what we call the triumphal entry. It wasn't on Sunday. It was on the 10th day of Nisan. And and on the 10th day of Nisan, what happened? The the scribes and Pharisees decide, okay, we've had enough of this. We're going to have to kill him. So they select the lamb. What happens on the next four days? They examine him. They take him to Annas, Caiaphas, Herod, Pilate. You know, they, they take him to all these people to examine him. What's the last thing Pilate says before they, or Terah? No, yeah, it's Pilate, isn't it? The last thing Pilate says before they kill him? I find no fault in him. And other words, this lamb that you selected on 10th of Nisan, according to scripture. I mean, he's ready to be killed, so go ahead and kill him. He's perfect for the slaughter. So they put him on the cross at 9 o'clock in the morning. They pierce his side at 3 o'clock in the afternoon, which is the exact time that all the lambs are being killed all over Jerusalem for the Passover that night. So gee, you, you see how that is? We miss all that if we don't get on God's calendar. Well then, uh, and and then, so what happens? The, Beginning on, the, on that day, the evening of that day, is the 15th day of Nisan. And on the 15th of Nisan begins the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Jesus is put in the grave and is in the grave on the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Why is that important? Because he's unleavened. Leavened bread lies to us. There's not as much bread as you think you are if it's leavened. It's all puffed up. And then puff up is sin. Unleavened bread is the only real bread. It doesn't have any leaven in it. It, You you eat what you get. And so Jesus was unleavened. There wasn't any sin in him. There wasn't any yeast in him. So he's put in the grave on the feast of unleavened bread. But then when was he raised from the dead? He was raised from the dead on the feast of Habikarim, which is the feast of first fruits. And what was it? Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, Christ indeed has been raised from the dead. The first fruits. So you see what we miss if we don't get him on God's calendar? He's, he's on his calendar. He's not on ours. Well, then 50 days later was Shavuot, or Feast of Pentecost. And what happened on Pentecost, we all know, Acts 2. But what happened on Pentecost back in the, when Israel was in the wilderness was Moses got the Ten Commandments. So the law of the Moses came on Pentecost, and the law of the Spirit of Life that's in all of us now comes on Pentecost. So, I mean, God fulfilled every one of the first of the first feast, but now we're living in this long interval between before the fall feast. We've got all the spring feasts. We're living in this long interval before the fall feast start happening, and the first of the fall feast is not Rosh Hashanah. That's not a biblical name for it. That's, you won't find that in the Bible anywhere. The fall feast is Yom Teruach, the Feast of Trumpets, Bl- oh blowing trumpets. That's the first thing. One of my friends said the other day, after we had passed through the Feast of Trumpets and Jesus didn't come, he said, well, he didn't come this year. So, I mean, he, I mean, you can rest assured no, we're not supposed to know the day or the hour. We're supposed to know the season, and we're living in the season. But, I mean, he's going to fulfill all these fall feasts. I can get, I, I mean, is there any scripture that says that? No, but he did the first ones. It would be ridiculous not to think he's going to. And then 10 days later is Yom Kippur, which is judgment. And then five days later is tabernacling, and he's tabernacling with us. I mean, he's going to live with us. It's God and man living together. It's the restoration first of the millennium and then back to the Garden of Eden where God and man are walking together, tabernacling together, loving each other together. But that's not all. Jesus, let me show you now. I come to this one. Jesus was born during the Feast of Tabernacles. You say, what? How do you know that? Well, let me give you my, let me give you my reasoning for this. When Zechariah was in the temple to offer the sacrifice, and the angel Gabriel appeared to him and told him that Elizabeth was going to have a child, a son, and they were to name him John, who became John the Baptist. He would, Zechariah, that's Luke, the first chapter, verse 5, I believe that's right. Zechariah was in, he was in the order of Abijah. Well, you go back to Chronicles and you find out that the Abijah rotation of the priest, there were 24 rotations of the priest. In other words, the, every rotation of priests went into the temple for two weeks, I mean, for, for the first part of the last part of the month. So Abijah was the latter part of the eighth rotation out of 24, which means that Zechariah was in the temple during the last part of the fourth month. Are you with me? It was the eighth rotation out of 24. He was in the temple at the latter part of the fourth month when Gabriel spoke to him. Six months later, what did Gabriel do? He went to Mary. So that would be the latter part of the 10th month. You got it? Well, if Jesus was born nine months later, that would be the latter part of the what? The 19th month. But since there are not 19 months in a year, you subtract 12 from that, and what do you have? That Jesus is born the latter part of the seventh month. Well, what is the spell part of the seventh month? The month of Tishri, the Feast of Tabernacles, begins on the 15th day of the seventh month. So when the no wonder, John said, and the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. So, so there's just this whole kind of thing that we miss if we don't pay attention to God's calendar. All right, that's the, that's the first thing. <laughs> now, the second thing, and i just I, would, I mean honestly, I was so wrestling with this whole thing of what I was going to share with you, I had nothing uh, yesterday morning early, and then I was so grateful the Lord started downloading some stuff, and i finally could I, I finally could go to the tense tense America peacefully because I knew sort of the direction I was going to take today. But the second thing is, and this one is just really stirring me, and that is recapturing godly imagination as it relates to Scripture. Uh, there, we all know the passage in Ephesians 3. I hope you've got that little passage downloaded to your hard drive. I'm talking about internally. But uh, the Ephesians 3.20, to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we can ask or imagine, or think, some versions say, all that we ask or imagine, to him be glory in the community of believers, the church, and in Messiah Jesus through all generations forever and ever. All that we can ask or imagine. Now, and I looked up all these words that have imagined and all this kind of thing and it is true that the great majority of the of the cautions in the scripture are against godless imaginations vain imaginations and I mean and we all had them we all did I did I do I have to I have to crush them if I get into some kind of godless imagination but I think we've so shut down imagination that we haven't used our imagination when we're reading Scripture. I mean, I got so carried away reading Revelation 20:21 20, one day, and I'd read one of, uh, maybe it was Brock and Brody Trainey's novels, And when it was the life of Lazarus and when he came back from the dead and it was describing, and only the way these fiction writers could do, it was describing what happened to Lazarus when he died and how he hovered over his body for a little while and then he went up and was seeing all these people. I got so excited about it that I thought, why am I hanging on to this life so tight? It's going to be so much better when we get over there. Why hang on to people here? Let them go. and And if I go, don't you dare try to bring me back. <laughs> but anyway, because I got into this godly imagination, but, so I, but the, the, the scripture that really just, I mean, it blasts me in this whole thing is Hosea, the third chapter, verses four and five. Now, I've had that inside of me for a long time, but I didn't kick into this kind of godly imagination until, you know, a month or so ago. But Hosea 3. 4 and five says this, says, Israel will not have a king for many days. Well, they haven't had a king since Zedekiah in 586 BC when Zedekiah was taken to Babylon and his eyes were put out. They will not have a sacrifice for many days. Israel has not had a sacrifice since 70 AD when the temple was destroyed, right? Afterward, they will return trembling to the Lord and his blessing in the last days. Get that. This is the word of God. Israel will turn trembling to the Lord and to his blessing in the last days. Now, I believe we're living in the last days. We don't know the day or the hour. And I get that out of Luke 21, verse 24. In Luke 21, 24, Jesus describes what happened after the temple is destroyed. And he said the Jewish people are going to be scattered all over the world, which they were. And he said that Jerusalem would be trampled on by the Gentiles until the fullness of the Gentiles, until the time the Gentiles was fulfilled. Well, Jerusalem was trampled on by Gentiles until 1967. And Jerusalem is under the control of Israel since 1967. So the time of the Gentiles is over. And and the hardness in Romans 11, 25 says that that Israel would would have a hardness of heart until the time of the Gentiles is over. And 1967 is the time when Jewish people started coming by the tens of thousands to the Lord in the Jesus movement and then later in the Soviet Union. And so there's there's all this, this... this kind of thing that's happening. But now, Jesus says that in the last days, they're going to come trembling to the Lord. So we're in the last days. And so I started imagining what it was going to be like when Jewish people come to faith. And here's where, here's where my imagination landed. Uh, I, I, when, when we were headed toward, uh, toward Yom Teruk, the Feast of Trumpets, I thought, maybe it's tonight. And then if we headed toward Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, I thought, well, maybe it's tonight. We're still in Feast of Tabernacles, so it could be tonight. It could be tonight that this is going to happen, what I'm about to imagine for you. But it may be just tonight that every Jewish person in the entire world has, a, has an encounter somehow with the risen Jesus. Yeah, it could be tonight they're going to come trembling. It says so. reading. It's what the book says. Come on. Don't look at me that way. I mean, this is godly imagination. And so, so just imagine that this would happen. And, 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 and a family gets up and, and, and one of the teenagers says, when he's eating breakfast with his parents, he said, he says, Mom, Dad, I had the strangest, I had the strangest thing happen to me last night. I mean, Jesus came to me, and he said he was the Messiah, and And he's just so hesitant to say it, and then the mother says, son, I had the same encounter, and then the dad speaks up and says, oh, God, let me tell you what happened to me. At two o'clock this morning, I, I woke up, and there was this light brilliant in the room, and there was an angel standing in front of me. And he, and he told me the same thing. He said, you've missed it. Jesus really is the Messiah. I mean, so they start talking to each other and they decide they're going to have to go to the rabbi and tell him that. And so they go to the rabbi and they start to tell him the rabbi. The rabbi stops and puts his hands over on the dad's shoulder and says, don't worry about telling me this. He came to me last night too. <laughs> I've got to tell the whole synagogue. And the first thing you know, all the rabbis in the world start telling their synagogues. And they find out that every Jewish person in the whole world had an encounter with with Yeshua last night. and, 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 And they're going to have to start telling people. And then the first thing you know, it hits the news media. And all the news media of the world are saying, well, look at this. I mean, the front page headlines, bold headlines. Look at this! It looks like the Jewish people have decided Jesus really was the Messiah. I mean, it's coming all over the world, and and the, and 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 not only that, but here all the Jewish people come to faith, all of them. I mean, I, this is my imagination, but what's what he said? They will return trembling to the Lord in the last days. And so what's going to happen when all the Jewish people come to faith? Then Isaiah 42, 6 and 49, 6 is going to happen, that the Jewish people become a light to the whole nation. Now, how's that going to happen? Because all these Gentiles that have been non-believers, atheists and everybody else, are going to start coming to the Jewish people and say, come on, what's this this? I mean, you guys have been, I mean, because they were Jewish atheists and Jewish agnostics and all that kind of thing, but they've all come to faith, and so their students and all these people are going to come to them, and, and then that fulfillment is going to happen that 10 people will grab hold of a, one Jewish man in his robe and said, tell us about the Messiah. And so the Jewish people will come into their heritage of being a light to all the nations. Now, I got all that out of Hosea 3, 4, and 5. Come on! <laughs> <laughs> but then, uh, there, but there's more. <laughs> and I mean, I've known this passage in Isaiah 62 for a long time, but I never imagined it. But listen to this for Zion's sake, I'll not keep silent. For Jerusalem's sake, I'll not hold my peace until her righteousness shines out like the dawn and her salvation like a blazing torch. <laughs> Nations will see your righteousness and all the kings your glory. Come on. Nations will see the righteousness of the Jewish people, and it's going to impact the whole world. And then, uh oh, and then you get on down into that verse, and he says, you who call upon the Lord. Oh, he got my attention. Give yourselves no rest and give him no rest until he establishes Jerusalem and makes her the praise of the whole world. Now, I'm reading that by myself, and I'm into this whole thing. And I, I look up at the Lord, and I said, I'm not giving you any rest. You told me not to. I'm giving you no rest until you establish Jerusalem and make her the praise of the whole world. So, <laughs> and besides all that, you're, you're told to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. So anyway, that, that whole kind of thing is grabbing me. Well, but that's not all. I mean, when you get to <laughs> they're, they're the you know that passage that I told you about when I'm sure I did last time I was with you. And it's the, and it's really caused me to write the book, the Handbook of the End Times, hope, help, and encouragement for living in the last days. But that parable of Jesus, the wheat and weeds, when he uh, when he says that both go together till the harvest, well, of course that means the wickedness ripens, but righteousness ripens. That's what I'm I'm hanging on to that one. Righteousness, I mean, in me, righteousness is going to ripen in me. I'm going to get better than I am. I'm going to get stronger in the Lord. I'm going to see miracles. I'm going to put my hand on people. They're going to recover. I'm going to see blind eyes open. I mean, if somebody dies prematurely, I might try to bring them back, you know, <laughs> even though they may not want to, but if they're supposed to be here, because that's what Jesus did. And so there's, there's this, this kind of thing that's, that's happening. But in that whole parable, the, the the end place in Matthew 13, when when Jesus is explaining it, he says, then the Righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. That's you. You're talking about you, grace center. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. If you shine, that means your countenance is going to be a glow. That means you're going to be walking in the mall, and somebody will come up to you and say, "Wow, what's with you?" And you're going to lead them to the Lord. That's your destiny. Because we glow. I mean, after all, that's what the Psalm says. Psalmist says that those who fear the Lord are radiant. And I, I, I can't resist always saying that song that Gary Paxton wrote years ago at Belmont. If you're happy, notify your face. You know, <laughs> well, I, believers all over the world are going to notify their faces, and they're going to have. And, and which means we're, we're going to overcome worry. I mean, worry is a sin. Confess it as a sin. Get over it. Discouragement is a sin. Be not discouraged. That's a commandment. So confess it as a sin. Don't just say, well, I'm discouraged. Well, then confess it and get over it in Jesus' name. Because he he can do this supernatural kind of stuff like that. And then Daniel describes this same time. And he—he he, it's the same thing. Jesus is describing. He's describing the time of the end in Daniel twelve and verses three and ten read like this: "Those who are wise will shine like the brightness of the heavens, and those who lead many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. Many will be purified, made spotless, and refined." Hey, I, you know, yes, Daniel and John both talk about the time when there's going to when the saints are even going to be turned over to the end. Christ for a season. I think it'll be a short season. But the reality is, even though we're going to be persecuted and all this, but we're still going to be the strongest people in the world. Read the, read the book of, of Richard Wurmbrand, how people came to faith while he was in prison because he was so strong in prison. He doesn't regret being in prison. Or there was that, who was that woman that, that which book tells about this? But anyway, she, was, she had three children and they turned, she was in China and they the her husband had died and they she was arrested because she had been preaching the gospel they put her in prison she was in prison for 8 years her children were taken care of by people in the in the community and there was there was almost nobody, if nobody, in the prison, like 1,500 people in her prison, and no believers as far as she knew when she got there. When she left eight years later, over half the prison population, and many of the guards were believers because that woman was in there. She left, they were releasing her, and she turned around and wept when she was leaving prison because she was leaving her congregation behind. I mean, that's, look, you you just say, well, that's, that's, that's godly ridiculous. Yes, it is, but that's who you are. You could do that too because it's not about you, it's about who lives inside of you, and who lives inside of you is the one who did that in her, and that's why he could do it in you. So, we've got to believe for more. And so, so, so that takes me down to that takes me down to John the 14th chapter, verse 12. I was talking about this this morning, and 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 Jeff said, I may have to put that on the wall. I mean, uh, yeah, because I mean. We've got to live in John 14, 12. I mean, we don't just read through this stuff. Stop and believe it. Put your weight down on it. What is John 14, 12? Well, you should know from evermore from this point on. Anyone who believes on me will do the things I'm doing. That's what Jesus said. Even greater things than these because I'm going to the Father. What does that mean? It means you're going to put your hands on the sick and they're going to recover. Well, you say, well, I've done that and they didn't recover. Well, how many times have you done it? Well, 213. We'll go for 214, because that one might be the one. Because this is what the book says. I believe the book more than I believe my own emotions or feelings. I believe the word of God. Even if my my actions, if my life hasn't measured up to it, it's going to measure up to it. I'm still here. He's still working on me. I'm going to get better. I'm going to get more, because he he is in me, and he's working it out. And so, yeah. And <laughs> and then the, uh, the, the the next thing is, uh, which really is closely connected to this. Uh, when you read the word, when you read the word, unless there's some reason to accept what you're reading allegorically, take it literal. And uh, this this is still working inside of me. I had an, I had about about a year ago when I was in Israel. I I had an encounter with the Lord when I was in Sukkot Hillel, the house of prayer, and I was looking across to the Mount of Olives. I mean to the Temple Mount, and I happened to be reading Isaiah two. That just happened to be my reading in the prophets that day. I didn't plan it this way, but I was looking out the Temple Mount and I'm reading Isaiah two. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be exalted as the highest of the mountains. And I didn't read any further. I just stopped short. I did just what I did then. I thought, oh my gosh, that temple, that, that mountain is going to be the highest of the mountains. That's what it says. And I thought, well, that's kind of ridiculous. Higher than Mount Everest? I mean, the highest mountains in the world? This is going be, I mean, that seems a little upset. Well, don't you remember, though, Don, that in Isaiah 40, Isaiah says that every valley will be lifted up and every hill and mountain will be brought low. Every. That doesn't mean many. It says every, every hill and mountain will be brought low. And so I thought, well, I guess it is. I mean, okay, there's going to be all this earthquake that's happened, so obviously... They said, "Well, well, then why wouldn't Jesus, when he comes back, why wouldn't his he put his temple on the highest mountain in the whole world? Why wouldn't he? It's symbolic. So I, I totally believe this. I believe that that temple mount is going to be the highest mountain in the world when Jesus comes back, and he's going to reign from the highest mountain in the world over the over the world for a thousand years. So, so dig into this, and when you when you read scripture, believe it for what it says, and quit allegorizing it." when there's no reason to. Okay, there's another thing, though, that, uh, that I, I, I'm going to throw this one out because it's way out there, but I'm, you're with me so far. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> there's, a, there's a passage in the Talmud, so I'm told, I haven't read it, but one of my Israeli friends told me that it was in the Talmud, and uh, that, that God created Adam and Eve on the Temple Mount. And uh, my good friend, whom I trust implicitly almost, Asher and Trader, told me one time that he thought God created Adam and Eve on the Temple Mount. And I thought, Asher, now I've trusted you with everything you've ever said biblically, you're a Harvard graduate cum laude that's baptized in the Holy Spirit, and I have so trusted you, but this is the most absurd thing I ever heard, that God created Adam and Eve on the Temple Mount. Well, everybody knows it was in the, the Tigris and Euphrates, and that's way off. But I couldn't let it loose of it because Asher had told me that. And then one of our, one of our guides said, well, you know that Jewish thought believes that God created Adam and Eve on the Temple Mount. And so I, I thought... Well, I mean, is that possible, Lord? I mean, I don't see if that's possible. And then I, I one day I thought, oh, wait a minute, wait a minute. Chronicles and Genesis both say that in the days of Peleg, the earth was divided. Oh, oh, all the continents were together and all the seas were together until Peleg. And so when Peleg happened, the, the seas, the land masses started separating out and there was a lot of upheaval and and so there was a whole big change in the landscape. And I thought, okay, well, all right, well, it's possible. And, uh, but I still didn't, I wasn't a believer. But then the next time, a few months later, I started back through Genesis, and I didn't get any further than Genesis 2, and all of a sudden I read that there are four headwaters that were in the Garden of Eden, from the Tigris, Euphrates, the Pishon, and the Gihon. And I thought, oh, Lord, the Gihon? I know what the Gihon is. The Gihon is where Solomon was crowned king. The Gihon supplies the water for Hezekiah's tunnel. The Gihon is in Jerusalem. Oh my Lord, well, I'm a believer. I think you created Adam and Eve up there. <laughs> and so I couldn't wait to get to Israel again and go up on the Temple Mount by myself. And I'm walking around up there. I didn't want to be with anybody else that day. I'm just walking around and I'm saying, Lord, would you do it? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, where'd you do it? And about this time, I'm in front of the of the Golden Dome, which was erected in by the radical Islamist Antichrist in the seventh century, and it's put on. If it's not the part of the temple, it's in the area of the temple, and and inside it says God doesn't have a son. God doesn't have a son. God doesn't have a son. And all of a sudden, I thought that this is the most the most antichrist piece of, of land in the entire world. And I said, I bet that's where you did it. <laughs> because why would, because every demon in hell knew where you did it. And so why wouldn't they make that the most, anyway, it just, I mean, this kind of stuff just jazzes me. I mean, <laughs> it makes me excited about reading scripture and excited about what God's doing everywhere. All right. Then, the, all right. Then the oh the, the next thing I want to say is I just want to want to want to be sure and tell you this. I want to challenge everybody in this room to become Caleb's and Joshua's in our generation. See, I already told you, and you know that that Daniel and John both talk about a time when the saints are conquered or turned over to the Antichrist or something like that. But see what happened with the 10 tribal leaders is they saw the horror and they invested in the horror and they refused to see that God could see them through the horror. But Caleb and Joshua saw the horror but they also had the but God factor because they knew. And see, the hardest time in the entire history of Israel in Egypt the, the worst time in all of their 400 years there was in the time just before their deliverance. See, they even experienced the first two plagues the water turned to blood and the frogs. But in plague number three, what well, the, the magician said, that's the finger of God. And from that time on, Israel was in Egypt when the plagues were being poured out, but they didn't experience the plagues, but they'd gone through the tough time. When we go through the tough time, which I don't think is any longer than three and a half years, we will go into a place that, if even if those bowls of wrath in Revelation fifteen and sixteen are poured out while we're down here, we won't experience them, because we're because God is protecting us. And I believe that that's the time after we go through that hard time. It's a time where somebody could take a machine gun and put it to our head, and it won't go off because we are invincible. In fact, I met a man in Ethiopia who had been electrocuted three times and they finally let him go because the electricity failed all three times. (laughs) See, that's the kind of heritage that we're going to have in the Lord. So become Caleb's and Joshua's, looking at the hard times but saying, but God will see us through. I I never will forget being out at Grace Chapel when Steve Berger, after his Josiah died, in that tragic one-car accident, the week before he was to go to UT, to school. And I, I was there and he preached a sermon on Romans 8, 28. All things work together for good. Those, and I was sitting back there listening to him and I was just amazed at this message. I mean, he said the hardest scripture in the Bible to believe. And he got through his message and then he turned to everybody and he said, an 18-year-old son killed a week before he to go to university. And he went on like that for a minute and then he stopped and said, yes, all things. Now that's the kind of spirit that's in us. That's not the kind of spirit that we're going to, get. that's the spirit in you. But let his spirit loose inside of you. And then the, the last thing I've got is, and this is, too, this is so important. It happened to me yesterday morning again. I got up and I, partially because I was struggling with what to say here but I got up, and I, I was in this negative self-talk. I mean, I'm not enough. I don't have enough. I'm not a, I mean, I don't have enough. I'm Anyway, I don't know what all it was. And I had to grab myself and kick into speaking again my identity statement over me. I didn't get in front of a mirror this time, but, I, but I'm headed out. And I started saying to myself, no, 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 no. I believe the word of God more than I believe my own emotions or feelings. And therefore, I boldly declare, even though it's hard for me to do it, that I'm becoming more like Jesus every day because that's what you said in your word. And yes, and I'm righteous in your sight. That's what you said. That's hard for me to believe, but you told me that. I'm righteous in your sight, and so I have a secure future. I don't dwell on the past, but I embrace everything you're doing in this generation, whatever my role is in it. And by the way, I've got a heart after God like David. Now, and, and, and so like David, I'm not going to depart from this life till I've accomplished God's purpose for me in this generation. And I live in constant expectation and confidence that the kingdom of God is advancing every day and that Jewish people are coming to faith in Jesus every day. And I fear the Lord, and I find great delight in his command, Psalm 112. So my children are going to be mighty in the land, and wealth and riches are going to be in my house. And you know why all this is going to happen? Because Jesus is my king and my master, and he he has all authority, not just in heaven. He's got all authority on the earth. That's why I know this is going to happen. And I was headed out toward tense America, and I knew when I got there that one of my roles is is who I am. And so I said, okay, and here's my vision for right now in my life. My vision for who I am right now in my life is that at this point in my life, my primary role is to be a father. To my family, extended family, and others, and a prophetic, apostolic voice to the people of God, challenging them through who I am, what I say, write, and do, to be radically sold out to Jesus all of their lives, and to embrace whatever it is God has for you at this point in your life through the help and power of the Holy Spirit. And so by the time I got over to the 10th America, I was walking around just putting my hand on people and calling forth who they were and blessing them, because that's who I am in this generation. So so Grace Center I challenge you become all you have. I prophesy over you. You're going to come into the fullness of who you are. Every one of you, you're going to live John 14:12. You're going to become like Jesus. You're going to you're going to you're going to acknowledge his righteousness. You're going to stop the negative self-talk. You're going to write your own vision statements even and memorize them so you can say them to yourselves. And this church is going to change the complexion of this whole Middle Tennessee because of who you are and what you believe and what you're walking in. This is your destiny and you're going to walk in it to the glory of God. In Jesus' name, amen. Woo!